Are you good with people? Maybe you're organized or have a knack for numbers. Well, then chances are you've got skills that could lead to a new career. A Google Career Certificate can help you get a foot in the door with top employers in fast-growing fields like IT support, project management, data analytics, and user experience design. It's professional-level training developed and taught by Google employees. And it's all online so you can learn around your schedule. Put your skills to work. Go to grow.google slash certificates. Faster my crazy day, my packed commute, all those unread emails in my inbox. But I'm getting stronger, faster, and pushing myself further every day. I don't care if I'm not like everyone else. This punching bag is the best way to end my day. <laughs> Fearless is knowing yoga isn't your style. That's the power of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Federal Employee Program. Learn more about our healthy benefits at fepblue.org slash get more. Hi, and welcome to our podcast, The Pollsters. I'm Margie O'Mara, Democratic pollster with the bipartisan firm Purple Strategies. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican pollster with the firm Echelon Insights. And each week we bring you the latest polls driving the news in politics, tech, entertainment, and pop culture. So we have a few announcements. First of all, the polls have closed not in Nevada, but on our Twitter page, and the responses are in. 39% want a longer show each week that combines the interviews that we have with fantastic guests along with our regular briefing, but a majority say they want the interviews in a separate show so we can keep each show's length a little bit shorter. They don't go over an hour, and the interviews, we're going to have them come out earlier in the week, like Monday or so, and then have our longer briefing or our briefing shows, like what we're doing right now, midweek, Wednesday, Thursday, as we've been doing it. It's not two weekly briefings. Lots of people have said that they wanted that. That We love you all, but we can't do that. We got time for that. <laughs> Ain't nobody got time for that. No, <laughs> so, I'm so sorry, folks. Not because there's a shortage of polling, because Lord knows there is not. But there's a shortage of Margie and Kristen. <laughs> so that we cannot do. Um, but we do have really fantastic interviews. And we recorded one this week with David Dutwin, who walks through very clear language, um, uh, how we can evaluate methodology and f- live calls versus online. That's pretty cool. So we're going to have some more starting to come out on Monday. Um, so we've heard you. And we, of course, listen to research. That's what we do. So we heard you loud and clear. So that's what we're, we're going to do. We also have had lots of great feedback, lots of really great uh, reviews on iTunes recently, including someone, and we heard this before, and I just love it, who said, I don't really... Um, you know, I don't follow politics. I'm not a statistician. I don't work in research. I just made an exercise of learning about something new, and I stumbled upon the pollsters, and it's really great. So um, so that's – thank you very much. That's awesome. That means we're doing our job and making everything understandable uh, and clear. And then we're also – you guys can catch us in person at a variety of cool things coming up. There's a Bloomberg Politics Breakfast uh, next Wednesday. That's March 2nd here in D.C., and we're going to be at the museum. I'm March 19th. That's a Saturday. And there's a panel about political podcasts. And we're going to be at Harvard's 50th anniversary of the Institute of Politics, where Kristen was a fellow and I once went to camp. Um, so those, 
<laughs> and I've spoken to the fellows too more recently, but camp was pretty formative, I got to say. Um, so we are available for panels, projects, and podcasts. Weddings, birthday parties. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Wherever people want to hear us talk, we'll show up. Um, and so there's also some cool news from the lady world. We got a lovely shout out at the website of The Illusionist with an A. Folks may listen to that uh, woman-hosted show. She t- uh, talks a lot about the origination of a variety of words. And so she had a political episode about the voting for the Lexicrat party. And on her website, they uh, they re- recommended us. Um, it was also Kristen's birthday this past week. And so we got a lovely shout out from the fierce Mary Catherine Ham. And there's also a new podcast called The Riveters, co-hosted by my friend Sally Smith, along with Buffy Wicks. So you should check that out. And even though they're both Democrats, their show, they interview just pretty, really awesome women. And I think even for, you know, folks on the Republican side, I think they would find the guests that they have really interesting. I don't think it's, you know, it's too partisan for folks who shy away from that sort of thing. And last but not least, I was at an engagement party last weekend and the bride comes up to me and she goes, you've got to meet my friend, Amy. My friend, Amy, listens to your show like crazy. Like every week, she's a huge advocate. And so I got to meet like one of my first That's cool. in-person, like, Fans. I mean, I meet people. We meet people all the time. They're like, oh, I like your show. But this was somebody who was like I had never met before and was specifically. So hi, Amy. It was wonderful (laughs) meeting you. Well, I spoke in (laughs) St. Louis. Well, I was in Jefferson City, Missouri, and I spoke to somebody at something and somebody saw that I was coming and tweeted out like, I'm going to this because I listened to the pollsters. So it's pretty cool. Thanks, everybody. It's really awesome. So enough of all that humble bragging. <laughs> it wasn't even very, wasn't very humble. <laughs> humble bragging would be like, I was at that engagement party and I looked like totally a mess and I was so embarrassed. But they heard my voice and knew it was me. Yeah. So I guess it that wasn't. That would be humble brag. This yeah, is just a straight up brag. Straight up bragging. So we're all that's done, quote unquote, announcement slash brags. Um, what are the key findings? Key findings this week. The GOP is getting trumped. It's real and it's happening. Uh, he is neck and neck with Cruz in Texas, according to one poll, and ahead of Marco Rubio in Florida. Is Trump inevitable? We will discuss. Then Latino voters have played a huge role in the last few contests uh, in Nevada. Were the exit polls right about Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump's performance with Latinos? The battle to fill Justice Scalia's seat heats up. Does it matter who Obama picks? In the battle between Apple and the FBI, who will win? And then where is all of that wine going? Let's ask a millennial. <laughs> so the number of the week, um, speaking of the lady world, uh, sometimes sometimes I feel like feminism hasn't really progressed much from the mid-90s when I was getting the beauty myth signed by Naomi Wolf instead of getting a LinkedIn request from her. And she wrote back, When you were by a college way, feminist on Montel? Exactly, yes. exactly. <laughs> and so that's kind of how I felt when I saw this poll from YouGov that came out this week. Just a third of women identify as feminists, even fewer men. That part didn't surprise me, but they asked a follow-up of people who are not feminists saying why, and the categories were, I don't believe men and women are equal, which not a lot of people said. But more, more, more women than men did. Who knows? I have no... I can't explain that, right? Feminists are too extreme, whatever that means. And then feminists are anti-men, which, of course, more men said, and the men who were not feminists said... Uh, they were divided, and that was one of the reasons because they f- felt that feminists were anti-men. 
And that makes me sad because we're so pro-men. We want all the same stuff you guys have. <laughs> it's not that we're anti-men. But anyway, these results nonetheless remind us that fem- the feminism as a legacy brand could use a little bit of improvement. So back to 2016. Okay. Can't get enough of it. So let's let's talk real quickly about what's going on on the Republican side, and then we can talk about the Latino voters in Nevada because yes. that's for both sides. So on the Republican side, um, we have now come out of both Nevada and South Carolina. And just for a second, I need to do another brag, real brief, hey. bragging on Echelon. So my firm, we don't do a lot in the public polling business. We work for clients. We keep our crosstabs internal. You know, we, we're not in like the same game. You know, like a morning consult and these other firms, like they put out a lot of public data. We don't normally do that, but we don't have a client in the primary itself. So we were kind of just curious, can you do an IVR poll in South Carolina and use the voter file to do it? Because I I am such an IVR hater. I hate robopolls. I'm always like complaining about them. Right. But can we do one? And if you do it using the voter file, can you get the results right? Um, So we we did it. We kind of like did it on the cheap. I recorded the like – Hi, I'm calling from Echelon National Insights. Like it was really just, all right, let's see if we can make this work. And we got it right. We sent the results that morning to um, Ariel over at Huffington Post Pollster. And we were like, just keep these embargoed. Like we don't want you to roll them out today and get everybody all in a tizzy. Like, oh, Echelon finds Trump is up by 11. But we found that Trump was up by 11 and he won by like 10.3 or something like that. So we were feeling real good about our results. So come check it out. Um, My – Business partner Patrick, he's the one that really was the driving force behind our analysis. He wrote a whole post about how what we did was we did different turnout scenarios based on, okay, we project that if 685,000 people turn out, this is what the ballot will look like. If 800,000 people turn out, this is what we think the ballot will look like, um, which we think is a perhaps a more useful way of thinking about polling um, the horse race. And than remember, just, Chuck Todd suggested, and some people do, that pollsters should release different turnout scenarios so we can just look at it as opposed to saying this is the number descended from the heavens, right? Here are some different options and we just don't know what turnout will be. And that's what you guys did. That's what we did. And we were pretty proud of it. Although we did not find that there were huge variations based on the different turnout scenarios, which was perhaps an interesting finding in and of itself. But nonetheless, um, check it out. We, We will be posting about our methodology there and potentially doing more in future contests where there's really not that much polling. Yeah. I mean, you know, I know people do poo-poo IVR, and yet it does at times have a strong track record. When we, the David Dutwin interview, which we'll release soon that I was referring to, he complains that legislation like TCPA, which we've spoken about before, and we go in more detail in that interview, have helped drive out things like IVR, make, you know, making it harder for some lower budget organizations and cam- campaigns from getting information that they need. So, and and look, there's, I would a, be, there's an upside to IVR, but right. sadly, we won't see much more. Of it well, and I states. feel like IVR is probably much more valuable in the Republican primary contest because who, t- you know, who takes these polls? Right. Older folks, folks with landlines, that stuff. That is fine in a Republican primary. Right. Probably less fine in a general. But nonetheless, we were pretty proud of ourselves. Cool. So let's talk about the rest of the Republican primary real quick. Uh, so coming up next, we have Super Tuesday on March 1st, um, where we're going to have a variety of different big contests. I believe Texas is one of them yep. that's coming up. And this is a real do or die moment for Ted Cruz because the the guess was that Cruz would always do very well on March 1st and that would give him a lot of delegates and maybe that would be where he stops Trump. Well, 
uh, Emerson polling just came. There are two polls that have come out within the last like 48 hours about Texas. Emerson polling shows Cruz 29, Trump 28, neck and neck. If Cruz, if that's the real result, that's a problem because Texas is Cruz's state. However, Monmouth came out with another poll that showed Cruz 38, Trump 23. So one of them shows Cruz up by one and one poll shows Cruz up by 15. Yeah, but that's still not crushing it for his home state. It's still not crushing it for his home state. But nonetheless, the I feel like if Cruz wins Texas, that's a bunch of delegates, and at least it makes the delegate math. Oh, because it's winner-take-all. It, it's, it, Isn't it? I don't think that you're allowed to do winner-take-all until March 15th, mm. but but I think there are different versions of what proportional looks like. But I think Texas just has a ton of delegates at stake, and so if Cruz performs well and wins by 15, he'll rack up a bunch. And if he doesn't win or only wins by one point— Yikes. Well, lots of people are saying that Cruz has some hurdles because he hasn't been winning with the evangelicals. And so that's similar to this how's he doing in Texas story, which is we're throwing out the rule book that people want to vote for somebody who's like them because Trump is doing well with evangelicals, which he is not. Um, Rubio does better with upscale folks. He's not. He comes from humble roots. Trump does particularly well with downscale folks. He's a billionaire. I mean, the, these rules just simply don't mean anything anymore. It's not Up as is simple. down, left is right. Right, exactly. People are not Cats just— and dogs, mass hysteria. Exactly. They're not just saying, hey, I look like this person, so I'm going to vote for him. It's, not, it's never really been that simple, but it's really not that simple right now. Well, so then moving on from Texas. So Texas is the state, one of the big states on Super Tuesday that everybody's focused on because it is the do-or-die moment for Cruz. It could be the thing that—, that ends Cruz's path or makes it look like Cruz's path is over. Then we move on to March 15th, where you have two other big states that have a lot of delegates um, and two contenders in the race for whom that's their home state. So for Florida, you have Marco Rubio, who the latest Quinnipiac poll came out and everybody was freaking out about it because it said Trump 44, Rubio 28, Cruz 12, K67, Carson 4. I mean, the idea that Marco Rubio would lose in Florida by 16 points is huge. And and some folks – I mean I, I actually wasn't that surprised because we've seen Trump doing fairly well. But Rubio only at 28. I mean it's as if he didn't really consolidate like a ton of Jeb's support or right. – um, and his – so one of Remember, his – Remember, he hasn't served the state statewide for that long. Folks well, argue he hasn't been. Of, he, he was – He was the speaker, right? But if you're not from – you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that, like, swing right. you know, swing primary well, voters know the, for sure what you're What's you're fascinating is that one of his top strategists, Todd Harris, uh, tweeted out something like, this Quinnipiac poll is not correct. I'm looking at tons of other numbers that show different things. You can take that to the bank. And, the, and so I was sort of like, all right, well, strategists always have this, like, bluster of whatever. Right. But then there was a follow-up tweet from Scott Tranter at Optimist, which is a an analytics firm on the right. I love them. They're great. Um, I trust Scott's analysis entirely. And Scott, like, basically endorsed it and was like, yeah, this Quinnipiac poll is not – that's not what we're seeing. So – I have I have questions now. I mean, Quinnipiac is showing this huge deficit for Rubio, but Scott, I mean, I get that like most strategists, they'll just have this bluster of like, oh, yeah, my candidate's doing fine. Shut up, stupid right. public pollster. Right. But like the optimist guys, they're they're good. They know what they're doing and they're not going to like blow smoke on Twitter if 
they don't genuinely believe that the poll is is junk. So we will see. And then last but not least, Ohio, which I'll just touch on for half a second. Kasich, his whole plan at this point is go to the Northeast, win these Northeast and Rust Belt states. And that's going to be my path to winning eight states and getting entered into nomination. And he may not even win his home state. Yeah. Uh, Quinnipiac also has a poll in Ohio, which, by the way, there are no other polls in Ohio. There is one. I, I mean, I, you have to go back to September and then it's a Quinnipiac poll in September. It's, this is ridiculous. Somebody poll Ohio. Uh, Trump 31, Kasich 26, Cruz 21, Rubio 13. Huh. That would be tough. Right. Um, and that's And that's – you know, people are arguing that he should not wait till that. He just should get out now because that's the I mean, we could talk about this, right? The inevitability of Trump, people on the right freaking out, <laughs> wanting. You and know, everybody's pointing at everybody else's candidate being like, you guys should get out for the good of the party. And right. He's being like, it's no, John you should Kasich, get out for the good of the party. <laughs> like somehow it's John Kasich's fault, you know, that Trump is doing. Well. Anyway, so there's all this there's all this commotion and Kasich is considered one, you know, part of this problem somehow, yes. even though. But in most of these really states, borne out by the if you national take Kasich's yeah. results, let's say you add all of Kasich's voters to Cruz or all of Kasich's voters to Rubio, which I've never seen a poll that suggests that a candidate dropping out, all of their support goes to one other candidate. Even That's what Jeb, Trump says. Well, even Jeb, I saw some poll that like they asked Jeb supporters, oh, I forget what state this was now, or maybe it was national. I shouldn't be quoting data that I can't remember precisely on this show, but it was some poll I saw where they asked Jeb supporters who your second choice would be. And like half of them went to Trump. Yeah. Half of the Jeb supporters went to Trump. So like the idea that, oh, okay, so it can drop out and like magically Marco Rubio becomes the nominee. Uh, that's that's a dicey strategy. Yeah, this is pretty much the crescendo of every Trump uh, victory speech is what you <laughs> what you just said. <laughs> he's he's incepted me. It's like he's inside my brain, Marty. He's you know what? Over. Maybe he listens to the pollsters <laughs> after all. Uh, so that's what's going on on the Republican side. Okay, let's talk about the Democrats. I mean, the Democratic side. So you know, uh, Sanders needs to regain some momentum. The polls seem to consistently show that he won't win in South Carolina, that Clinton will win South Carolina because of her massive advantage among African-Americans that you saw in the exit polls in Nevada and that you see in polls in South Carolina and national polls. He's been narrowing the gap in a lot of states. Is it enough? Can he, can he narrow the gap enough soon enough? Um, and it, it depends a little bit on the state that you're looking at. And the national numbers, it seems like, are almost a little bit better for Sanders than in the states that come next. So there's a Saturday contest in South Carolina. And then we head right into Super Tuesday uh, less than a week from now. But in the national numbers, Clinton's up just five, according to the Huffington Post average. And Harry Enton last summer, you may recall from 538, said, if Sanders is ever up in the RCP advantage. This is the RCP average. This is the Huffington Post average. But you get the idea. I will – he had three parts to it. I will videotape myself with doing the ice bucket challenge, which is a little dated, um, saying I feel the burn and then giving $50 donation to the charity of, I don't know, somebody's choice, the non-political charity of somebody's choice. And so there was recently a Fox News poll uh, showing Sanders up nationally, but that ha- we haven't seen that in any other poll. So that was just one poll, which of course Sanders mentioned in a press conference yesterday. Because, as we know, every candidate now talks about their own polling numbers. <laughs> you know. So does this mean we are on Harry Enton accountability watch? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> yeah, no, I think he should. I think he should come. I think he should come on the pollsters if this happens. We should do like some. Sort I mean, of... look, I've been so wrong about Trump so much that I really should not be in the business. Like people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones, but I at least didn't say if Trump wins the nomination, uh, I will do X embarrassing right. thing. I'm already be right and say it on Twitter, right? <laughs> so you know, so we'll see, right? I mean, that's you know, those are the national numbers, and the Sanders folks would argue, I guess, have argued, you know, we've made a huge amount of progress. Nobody thought this we'd be in the situation that that we are now, you know, just a few months ago. That may be true, but still looking at some of the states, it still looks like a tough uh, road. The states to watch, if you're looking for the states that will be competitive, will be Massachusetts um, and Oklahoma. Uh, Colorado has a cost. So the Massachusetts average is basically tied, more or less. Oklahoma, um, Clinton has uh, the advantage but it's a little bit smaller. And then Colorado has a caucus. So there's no polling, just like we didn't see a lot of polling in the Nevada caucus. There's not, I haven't seen any polling for the Colorado caucus. That's another state where the Sanders folks have targeted. Um, and you're also going to have a higher Hispanic uh, population there. Texas, though, we'll have a higher pop- Hispanic population. It's still pretty strong for Clinton, again, according to the averages. So we're going to see. This is, you know, a week from now when we do the show next week, we'll have a lot more answers. I don't know if we'll have any, how many more answers we'll have on the Republican side. We may not have, you know, we may be kind of saying the same thing on the Republican side a week from now. Maybe over. <laughs> we may have some more answers on the Democratic side, or who knows? We don't know. But let's let's talk, though, about this Latino piece and then we can go into the electability component, right? Yes. So uh, in, on this question, you know, the, the exit polls showed that uh, Bernie Sanders won Latino voters by 53, 53 to 45 uh, in Nevada and that Trump won Latino voters, that Trump did as well with Republican Latinos as he did with Republican white caucus goers. Right. Which, given Donald Trump's rhetoric – might seem surprising. And given that so many other pieces of data suggest that Trump really does horrendously with Latino right. voters. They are listening. That, yeah. <laughs> they are um, paying attention. You yeah. know, what's going on here? So I think on the on the Trump side, the answer can potentially be explained as this is a small subgroup. Caucuses are like you can kind of hand wave and just be like, well, this is weird. Or you can say, look, if you're a Latino and you consider yourself Republican, maybe you yourself are like an immigration hardliner or – Or it's you, just not your issue. It's just not your thing. Yeah. So – but what's fascinating to me about the Democratic side is that Washington Post Univision poll um, – You know, we, when we talk about people as, as pollsters, we like to give people these labels of different subgroups they're in, right? You are a white voter or an African-American voter, a Latino voter. You're a millennial voter, a senior citizen voter, whatever. But, you know, everybody wears multiple labels. And so it's fascinating to watch, uh, you know, among Hispanic Democrats, um, there is a generation divide yeah. too. And you see among young voters, such a huge proportion of young voters are Latino. So even though you can say, oh, well, in the overall, we expect Hillary Clinton will do better among Latinos, the average Latino voter is significantly younger than the average white voter, even among Democrats. Right. So it's, you know, you have these cross pressure forces going on that I think complicate things more than more than the media might have people Yes. It's it's particularly tricky in Nevada in the entrance polls because the entrance polls, as you said, very clearly showed that Sanders was up with Latinos. Now, she 
Clinton won. Clinton won pretty decisively in Nevada overall. And she won in the precincts that are overwhelmingly Latino. And, and these are all polls. These are not a, it's not a census. We don't know how everybody voted and we don't, you know, according to their race and ethnicity. But the Clinton folks argue, and you saw, seen some writing, Nate Cohn at the Upshot, 538 wrote about this. There's been a couple other places that have written about this, that um, – that since she won so decisively in the Latino precincts in Clark County, which is where Las Vegas is, it's hard to argue that the entrance polls are correct that Sanders won Latinos overall. Now, on the other side of the argument, you have Joe Lenski, who was a guest a couple of weeks ago, who runs all the exit polls. And he said, look, our polls are right. Um, you know, we give polls out in Spanish and in English. So that's not a confound. Uh, they don't go to every single precinct. But the folks who are younger, younger Latinos who live outside those heavily Latino precincts are going to be disproportionately Sanders because they're more assimilated, they're younger. And those folks are included in this Sanders wins among Latino number. Um, while the Clinton folks say, you just simply can't get there. The math doesn't add up. And the answer is, you know, we don't really quite know the answer, right? The answer may be that San, you know, somewhere in the middle that, you know, that Sanders did better than expected with Latino voters, that it's not as clear cut that, you know, Clinton did well with older Latinos or less assimilated Latinos, while Sanders did better with younger, uh, more assimilated Latinos. And that certainly would make sense given the Washington Post Univision poll that just came out today. And, you know, we're going to have to see as this changes in other in other states like Colorado or Texas or, you know, as we keep moving through the through the contest. If you also, again, this is the Washington Post uh, Univision poll, the favorable net favorable rating be between Clinton and Sanders is identical among Latinos. Um, the issue of age, as you mentioned, is very important because uh, his, the Latino population, this is of eligible voters, is far more likely to be millennial or younger than any other uh, ethnic group. So, um, you know, in terms of turnout, millennial Latinos are less likely to vote than other younger voters in other racial and ethnic groups. So all of this points to some interesting questions as we move forward that, one, Latinos are not monolithic, right? They don't all vote the same way. We're not even getting into country of origin or other kinds of uh, of ways that uh, Latino voters uh, differ. And also, you know, folks in Nevada differ from folks in the East, no matter what race or ethnicity you are. Um, and also the the importance of turnout and also how we look at these entrance and exit polls. Are they, you know, they, they tell us as much as we can find out about how people vote by demographic group. And, you know, the numbers, they're still polls. There's going to be a margin of error to them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if they're off a point or two, it doesn't mean that the whole system is has failed. It means that they are polls that maybe we, you know, want to impute too much precision to uh, when they're still ultimately polls. And that's, you know, also the same argument for the Trump vote, Trump polling number, where you're still talking about 8 percent, the 8 percent of the Republican poll was Latinos. That's still not, you know, it's not, we're not talking about thousands and thousands of respondents. We're talking about really a small number of respondents. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think that's, this is one of the big polling headlines that come out of Nevada. That's, you know, not sort of the, you know, not just who won or lost, but how do we look at, you know, can we trust these, uh, the polls among Latino voters, which for both contests, people were, you know, people were really debating whether or not the polls were accurate. Well, before we move on from 2016 into other political news, uh, 
we'll just take a quick look at what some of the ballot tests show. So on the Democratic side, of course, the race is still Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders. On the Republican side, now that we have narrowed things down, we can start – you know, previously there was this like limitless set of combinations of Democratic and Republican. You know, what if it's one of these 15 Republicans versus, you know, each of these two, the, the two Democratic candidates? Now we've got a smaller set of potential general election outcomes. Almost. Almost. Um, <laughs> you did it, America. <laughs> we, we narrowed the field, but not enough. Not quite yet. Um uh, and it, what basically we're seeing, if you take a look at the Huffington Post pollster averages, is that actually Bernie Sanders seems to be doing very slightly better than Hillary Clinton across these matchups for the Democratic side, and that Marco Rubio does very slightly better than Cruz or Trump. But in not these by a lot. But not by a lot. Right. Not by a lot. In fact, I mean, I, and again, I, I, it's hard for me to tell looking at these charts like how many data points there are, but – um, Sanders and Trump, I mean, Rubio is only is down six to Sanders and Trump is down 10 to Sanders. But I mean, w- w- the way you would t- you hear people talk about the idea of Trump as nominee, it's like this would be a catastrophe right. that would. Oh, my gosh. Like the Democrats would win a la Ronald Reagan in 1984. Right. And it doesn't seem like that would happen. And you have Democrats saying that about Sanders. Right. And it doesn't seem like that would happen with Sanders. Like. Hey, we're a polarized America. No matter who you nominate, if they've got it's the divided. Team R or Team T jersey on, it's very divided. Uh, so I think these numbers, you know, this is the electability argument is one Rubio has been making more and more. I think in theory, uh, it makes sense to me. But the polling at this point does not bear out this idea that Marco Rubio is like a million times better than Ted Cruz or D- Donald Trump as the Republican nominee. Yeah, I mean, it, it's and I know lots of folks talk about this, right? And I know there's, you know, it, there's more to figuring out who's more electable than these general election horse race averages, for sure. Nonetheless, it's, you know, these numbers suggest that it is, you know, there's way more to it, right? And that your initial gut check of who you think is a better nominee may or may not be true. And also, you know, there's a lot of stuff yet to be aired out there. I mean, if you're thinking about somebody like Hillary Clinton, there's not much more the American public can learn about Hillary Clinton. Like, that's all out there. But somebody like Trump, I think I read an article this morning that uh, the Democrats have been doing oppo research on Trump and that only like 20 percent of the stuff that they have found has been like made public. Which, of course, raises the question, why did none of Trump's Republican opponents do proper oppo? But that, that, I digress. Yeah, there was that uh, there was a, like a BuzzFeed story right before the debate, one of the Republican debates that showed that Trump went on Howard Stern early on and said, you know, I support I support the war in Iraq, even though he said I never supported it. And I guess the thing about Trump is that when challenged, you're like, hey, look what I have. He's like, whatever. <laughs> and, you know, the folks conjecture that when it comes to the general, he's like, OK, I have another set of applause lines. Who cares? You know, I have, you know, forget about the wall. I got something else. Free college, whatever, you know, whatever, whatever you guys want. I'm in favor of that, too. But we shall see. It looks like we will see for sure how that will go. Um, one thing that we also know for sure is that we have quite a few months of a, or at least in the short term, a contested Supreme Court battle over the replacement for uh, Scalia. And what's interesting in the polling is that 
question wording actually really makes quite a big difference here. Uh, Huffington Post did a roundup of a bunch of different polling uh, questions on this from Fox, uh, the Huffington Post own poll with YouGov, CBS, the NBC Wall Street Journal poll. The Fox poll seemed very clearly to show that um, – uh, that Obama should nominate uh, somebody now as opposed to not nominate. We should wait to the next president. And it's interesting. They had a lot more language in there saying, for example, taking into consideration that it's an election year. That I thought was an interesting piece of information. I mean, the thing with these questions is that you have to provide respondents with some context. And sometimes that context can put their finger on the scale one way or another. I mean, we saw this, um, you know, quite a few times when we, you know, well, we saw a couple weeks ago that only about half of people even know Scalia is. So it's no surprise that a lot of uh, surveys have to provide some context. But then Pew also showed very, you know, uh, a majority say that we should hold hearings and vote on Obama's nominee. But, you know, the downside of all this, of course, is that it's pretty divided along partisan lines. I and mean, what do you make of it? Yeah, it's it's divided along partisan lines. And, and the question wording on this is so important because this is likely not the sort of thing most voters have put more than half a second of thought into before the moment that that pollster calls them up on the phone and asks. And so the difference here in NBC Wall Street Journal's question wording that has things so divided – what they're really asking people is what would you prefer? Would you prefer that the Senate vote on this nominee or not? Um, the Fox question instead frames it as should the president get to nominate someone, which I can simultaneously say, sure, the president should nominate someone. He's the president. He should nominate whoever he wants. And then I would prefer that the Senate not confirm. You know, right. like I can simultaneously find a way to hold both of those views, which may explain why the NBC Wall Street Journal one, which is just – would you prefer that they have fill the seat or not is pretty split 43 42 but then the fox wording which is should the president nominate someone um or do you think that it's too late 62 percent say they think obama should nominate right. someone so right. it it it, ver- it depends a lot on what the question is that you're actually posing to people right and ultimately what really matters is how this affects key senate races yeah. i mean that's really the, the big question here where you have uh, Republican senators in blue or purple areas, specifically in Pennsylvania and Ohio. PPP released a poll and uh, they asked specifically about Toomey and, and Portman. And their question shows pretty convincingly that people would uh, be if they want to see their senator wait to see who's nominated before deciding whether or not to confirm. And they would be angry if they thought that the senator refused to uh, to confirm a replacement. And so there, you know, we, we don't have a lot of other question wordings to, prepare, to compare it to. But the fact that it says um, they should wait and see who the nominee is. That's an important component here because I, I think there is a conventional wisdom that suggests like for Republicans to say, you know, I'm deciding right now I'm not going to confirm whoever it is, is not a good place to be as opposed to kind of, well, let's just wait and see. And, you know, and then I'm going to refuse and then I'm not going to confirm that person that I think would be people would be more open to that than saying I don't even want to see who it is. I'm already against it. Um and then the refuse language is also pretty strong. But but maybe this is where people are. I mean, we have, we'll have to see. I mean, there's going to be more polling probably in those two seats in particular. The other issue that popped up this week that uh, breaks down not not along party lines, actually, or it's, it's sort of like a, a, a there's a, a weird there is slight partisan lean in this question, but it kind of splits people up in, in a little bit of a weird way. Um, 
the question of Apple versus the FBI. So for our listeners who uh, may not be following this story, uh, the FBI has in its possession the iPhone of one of the uh, terrorists from the San Bernardino shootings. And the way an iPhone works is, um, you know, you have to enter the little like numeric code to unlock a phone. And you can only enter one of those numbers every like 80 milliseconds. And if you enter enough wrong ones and the phone just like self-destructs and wipes itself. So what the FBI has asked Apple to do is go in and change the operating system on this phone to disable that mechanism so that they can like kind of brute force go through and try like one, 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 right. One, 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 two, one, 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 three. Um, Because if they tried that now, the phone would wipe. And Apple is saying, we can't do this because if we create software that will do this, there's a potential that it could get out and would allow anyone's phone to be hacked. Right now, your phone is crazy secure and there's a risk. So the, the, the question that is now being posed is who's right? Apple, when they say, no, we're not creating this like master key, um, or the FBI, when they say, uh, this was a terrorist's phone, you need to tell us what was on the phone. Right. Um, and so in, in this question, uh, P, the Pew Research Center asked, uh, in response to the court order tied to ongoing FBI investigation of the San Bernardino attacks, Apple should unlock the iPhone, a slim majority, 51%, 38% say they should not unlock the iPhone, and 11% don't know. And when you take a look at it broken out by party, you actually wind up with a majority of Democrats and Republicans saying that Apple should unlock the iPhone. Something a, you rarely see, by the way. You never see Republicans and Democrats agree. And you see about a third of Republicans and 37% of Democrats saying they should not unlock the phone. Independents, however, are much more divided. You have independents 42 saying should not unlock the phone and only 45 percent saying should unlock the phone. So instead of these, you know, 20 some point margins that you've got um, for, yes, unlock the phone among the partisans, the independents are more kind of privacy minded on this front. Right. And the lean Republican independents, they'll say. They should you know, they should unlock it. Lean Democrats say should not. It's it's fascinating because it's almost like this issue was designed to test people's security versus privacy boundaries. Like you couldn't have asked for kind of a better a yeah. test case, right? You have a terrorist who committed a heinous crime versus a potential security breach that there's a worry that it could hurt, you know, everybody's favorite phone. <laughs> right. Well, this what I think is so, I, you know, I, I try not to, like, confess my own personal leanings on this show because they are immaterial to our analysis of, of the polls. But typically I am someone who finds myself more siding with security, robust American pr- presence, military, rah, rah, you know, like, right. I, you know, that's. That's where my sympathies sometimes tend to lie. And on this one, I'm like, do not unlock that phone. Do not create this master key. Like, I'm one of these weird voters mm-hmm. that's like right, not it's... breaking the normal way. Like, I, I I feel weird. All of the other people that I follow on Twitter who I normally agree with are, like, on the other side of this issue. I'm like, no, no, no. Everything that I've learned about how – Technology works suggests to me you should not you should not do this. I know. It's, so this is it's a fascinating issue. I will be very interested to see. This is another one of those ones where polling question wording as more and more people test this. I can't wait to see the language people use. Right. I, you know, I, I don't know. We'll see how if anybody tests this, tests this again, because while it's pretty clear how people feel, ultimately, I don't know how many people got 
worked up about this because it's so like, well, that's tough. You're, you're, are people going to really come to blows over it? I don't right. know. We'll see. So in our regular feature, Ask a Millennial, we happen to have an expert on millennials. In fact, the author of the book on millennials, The Selfie Vote. Um, so, Kristen, what big news about millennials almost, almost beat Man Sneaks into the Lunch Focus Group on our Facebook page? If you're wondering where all of the wine went, America, the millennials drank it. Uh, apparently, millennials drank 42% of all wine in the U.S. last year, more than any other generation, according to new research from industry nonprofit Wine Market Council. Um, they found that millennials, which are defined, they define millennial as the 79 million Americans aged 21 to 38. That is a high ceiling on millennial. I don't think of 38-year-olds mm. as millennials. But nonetheless. Yeah, uh, probably not. The, if, you, if you expand millennial all the way up Someone to Someone working on it was probably 38 and was like, oh, uh, yeah, let's make it 38. <laughs> sure. Um, they found that millennials who are high-frequency drinkers, which means you drink several times a week, uh, they drank three glasses of wine per sitting, which was more than the high-frequency drinkers in other settings. Um, and among those frequent drinkers, two-thirds were women. So Good job, ladies. I, I, I will say this past weekend I did a thing, ABC News Digital, like they do their live stream online. So the night of the South Carolina primary, I did a, a segment for them, but I did it via Skype just from my house. Right. Like – I, I put a blazer on, you know, I right. tried to make it look professional, but I was sitting on my couch right. and the producers were like, it looks like you should have a glass of wine and you're like about to watch Scandal. <laughs> like, let's make this a thing. <laughs> yes. I'm a beer drinker rather than a wine drinker for the most part. But yeah, the uh, I'm going to sit on my, my couch with a huge glass of wine. That's like the Olivia Pope yes. method of coping, apparently. So that's the Margie O'Mara method of coping. <laughs> 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 I mean, this, this You're is, such a millennial. I know. I'm a millennial, finally. Last night, I got together with one of the moms in my neighborhood, and we had white wine salad and quiche. And I'm like, you know what? This is pretty much probably what people think I do every night. That this is what I'm doing right now. <laughs> this is very, very Tacoma Parky, um, and or I guess a millennial. So um, last but not least, very important data out on where dogs are are accepted. <laughs> now, this is from YouGov, and the headline says, leave your dogs at home, <laughs> because while people are grudgingly accepting of dogs at public trans transportation, they reject dogs everywhere else, malls, stores, grocery stores, bars, fast food places, restaurants, clear majorities up th to three-fourths say no, it's unacceptable to have your dog there. Even dog owners, two-thirds of dog owners say it's unacceptable to bring your dog into a bar. Although I have to say I've seen quite a few dogs in bars and been out when people have brought their dogs into a bar. Sidewalk cafes, people will have them like, you know, tied up. And sometimes the restaurants will even have little like doggy snacks. Yeah. that's is this, a, this is like an urban hipster thing? Yes. And I've be been – I actually have taken – a dog I once had, who was no longer, to one of those doggy happy hours, like a yappy hour. I've been – he didn't like it. <laughs> and so maybe I'm, I'm, part, I'm part of the 22%. I don't yappy know. Hour. He was like, this stinks. Why am I here? I also um, – I also – so anyway, I was listening to a show about like one of the most famous dogs on Instagram, which I don't know who that is because I don't do Instagram very much. But um, And so the 
woman who owned the dog was out with her dad and the dog and said, you know, I th- I'm thinking I'm, I'm going to do, uh, you know, whatever the dog's name is, like full time, the Instagram brand stuff for the dog full time as my job. And the dad was like, are you insane? This was like the craziest thing anybody's ever told me. And right then the waiter came up and said, oh, my God, is that <laughs> so, whatever the dog's name is? Is that Maggie, the dog? <laughs> like, I love her. So and the dad was like, OK, now I'm finally convinced. So some people do. If you have a famous dog, you can bring it. True, to barn. true confessions. I have a handful of, of golden retrievers that I follow on Instagram because they make me happy. But I would not be able to recognize them at a like, bar. Yeah, I wouldn't be like, "That's Brinkley, the golden retriever." Oh my gosh, your post this morning was so cute. Because like, golden, re- I mean, they all right. look kind of similar to me. I, well, I think this is like a mutt. So like one of those like a kind of very famous, famous okay. mutt Instagram mutt. Um, but I also know someone who used to bring their cats to the grocery store. Not okay. That was not- nope, <laughs> nope, <laughs> nope. That seemed to be the consensus at the grocery store. No, that's. Oh, oh, my God. So anyway, oh. America, you've spoken. Um, so key findings. Buckle your seatbelts for March Madness. Even by as soon as next week, we may have a clear idea where the race is going. But no one knows where the November race is going. So don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Meanwhile, the SCOTUS fight is already heated and it's barely even started. And one thing that's not so heated, Apple versus the government or dogs in bars. Yes or no. Meanwhile, millennials aren't all bad. They drink wine, don't they? <laughs> you can find <laughs> us on Twitter at, at The Pollsters. You can find Margie at, at Margie O'Mero, and I'm at K. Soltis Anderson. Follow us on Facebook throughout the week. We will post links to stories we might chat about in the show. Uh, we are also would love to have you subscribe on your favorite podcatcher. Be sure to write a review or visit us at thepolsters.com. Thanks. See you next week.